Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. All my day. On August 19th, 1953, 70 years ago this week, the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, who had seized Iran's vast oil fields from the British and put them under Iranian control, was removed from power in a coup organized and financed by the British and U.S. governments. He was replaced by the dictatorial Shah, who immediately signed over 40% of Iran's oil fields to U.S. companies. The coup ushered in a long nightmare of repression, buttressed by Iran's brutal secret police, Savak, trained and equipped by the CIA. The Shah not only crushed the democratic aspirations of Iranians, but enriched U.S. oil companies and purchased billions of dollars of weapons from U.S. weapons manufacturers. The CIA and the British intelligence services used bribery, libel, black propaganda that accused Mossadegh of being a communist, assassinations, and orchestrated riots by paid mercenaries to overthrow the democratic government. They hired agents to pose as communists to threaten religious leaders, while the U.S. ambassador lied to the prime minister about alleged attacks on American citizens. They oversaw the assassination of the chief of police, a Mossadegh loyalist, leaving his mutilated body on the street as a warning to others who might defend the democracy. At least 300 people were killed in fighting in the streets of Tehran. Mossadegh's house was surrounded and attacked, and most of his security detail were killed. Mossadegh was sentenced to three years in prison, followed by house arrest for life. The dictatorship of the Shah fueled the virulent anti-American backlash that led to the 1979 revolution and the establishment of a militant Islamic government. The Iran coup also became the template used by the CIA to overthrow other governments around the globe that challenged U.S. hegemony and the exploitation by global corporations. The list of CIA-orchestrated coups that installed compliant right-wing dictatorships includes not only Iran, but Guatemala, Indonesia, South Vietnam, the Congo, the Dominican Republic, Iraq, Indonesia, Cambodia, Chile, Bolivia, Ethiopia, Angola, East Timor, Argentina, and Afghanistan. Hundreds of millions of people suffered because of U.S. interference. They lost their freedom, they were impoverished, and suffered severe repression because of these interventions. They were sacrificed on the altar of U.S. power and corporate profit. Joining me to discuss his documentary, Coup 53, is the Iranian filmmaker Taghi Amirani. This film uses newly discovered archival material to expose how the CIA worked clandestinely to overthrow Mossadegh, providing us as well with a blueprint for the numerous other CIA coups carried out in the last few decades. So, Taghi, let's begin with this, because it's a central focus in your film, uh, with what you found about this British intelligence officer, Norman uh, 
is a Derbyshire Derbyshire. Norman Derbyshire. That's right. Um, I think uh, the Derbyshire interview is the heart and soul of this film and what it presents as new evidence, new material. Uh, when we have public screenings of the film in our introduction, Walter Murch and I um, say to the audience, we're going to give you a pair of HD glasses, but these are not HD uh, as in high definition or those 3D glasses. This is HD for historic dimension. And the historic dimension through which you have to experience this film is this. To this day, 70 years since the 1953 coup, the British government has not officially admitted its role in this coup. Everything that happens in coup 53, everything that happened to coup 53 after its release, everything we talk about right now must be seen through that prism. The British have not yet come clean. The coup didn't happen. They had nothing to do with it. Uh, although the CIA have finally admitted they released the documents. And so Norman Derbyshire, in the absence of the British government official admission, stands in for that confession. He happens to be the lead MI6 officer who co-wrote the plan, uh, and he masterminded the coup, he ran the coup, he paid the mob, he orchestrated the whole management of uh, agents on the ground, and he, when, he, when the British were kicked out of Iran, uh, when Mossadegh dis discovered the, the plots for the coup, he uh, remote controlled the coup from Cyprus. Derbyshire's interview is really the, the most clear piece of evidence of British involvement in this coup. I want to talk about that because it's a fascinating interview. Uh, and there's an intimation in the film that the reason he went public uh, was because uh, Kermit Roosevelt had taken all the credit for the coup, uh, there was a kind of vanity contest, but his interview, and you had drawn from a series on Empire that was done in the 80s, I think by Granada TV or something, that, that interview never, it never appeared. It never appeared in the series at all. So just talk about what happened there. Yeah. So End of Empire is a television documentary series made by Granada Television. It was a major flagship series. A lot of money went into it, 14 episodes. It was essentially a series about the unwinding of the British Empire. And even though Iran wasn't really a colony and it wasn't officially part of the empire, but because the British had controlled Iran and its financial interests and its oil for so long, it was treated as a colony. And so one episode was about that, and it was about the coup. Uh, a lot of diplomats and politicians were, were interviewed, where were still alive at the time in, in the early 80s. Uh, amongst the documents that we discovered in the basement in Paris of Mossadegh's grandson, because he was one of the historic advisors to the End of Empire program makers, was this transcript of an interview with Norman Derbyshire. Now, when I read this interview transcript, I, my mind was blown because he was so blunt. He was so clear. He was so open about his involvement, about the British involvement, about the motives, and the, the details were just staggering. And yet, when I watched the film, he wasn't in the film, nor was the interview. And, and that sort of sparked a whole chain of chain reaction of trying to trace either the tape or film, if that he might have been filmed, and that led to a dead end. And we, we got Ray Fiennes to come in 
and become the avatar for Norman Derbyshire and bring his words to life on the screen. And those words were never seen in public in a movie of this scale. And that's our claim to be the first to do that. And as you say, uh, until Derbyshire came, came along, this was always known as the CIA coup, the Kermit Roosevelt coup. Kermit Roosevelt uh, was a smart guy, Harvard educated and all that. He, he didn't speak Persian. He was only in Iran for three weeks. Derbyshire was in Iran since he was a 19-year-old soldier. He grew up essentially in Iran. He spoke better Persian than me. He knew the Iranian street. He had all the smarts. He had all the connections. He really understood the psychology of the Iranian mob, as he says in his interview. He was the real mastermind. Uh, and in fact, the British were the people who came up with the idea for the coup, instigated by British Petroleum, to re regain control of what they thought was their property. Uh, and they dragged the Americans in. So this was never a CIA coup. It was a, an MI6 coup aided by the CIA who were convinced to come in and help, uh, of course, in exchange for oil. We even have documents in which the Americans are saying, yeah, we'll help you with this whole, you know, this coup, but we need some of that oil. And it turned out to be exactly the case with 40% give gone to the American oil companies. Um, what's fascinating about the Derbyshire interview is this. Uh, the people who made the program have kicked up a huge fuss. They created a smear campaign since, since the film came out, uh, pick, picking on this one thing. We never filmed him. His interview was an off-the-record uh, off recording. I mean, just the absurdity in that one sentence. How can a recording of an interview be off the record? How, how, why would a seasoned spy, an MI6 officer, go on the record being recorded in an off-the-record interview. He knew exactly what he was doing. He had his own reasons for spilling the beans. Professional envy could be one. Uh, don't forget, he was giving this interview uh, in the early 80s. Iranian revolution was still fresh, and he'd seen his handiwork all come apart. You know, his, his uh, protege, the Shah, and Derbyshire had a very close relationship with the Shah. When he was in Iran, he would go and visit him in the palace every fortnight. He had an audience with the Shah. The Shah was on the run. By that time, he'd, he'd already died. Iran was in turmoil. And he may have been thinking, what the hell did I do? And he, he had sort of some crisis of conscience. It could have been professional rivalry because he was on the rise in MI6, but he retired early. He ended up not in a great situation, having to sell secondhand arms. I mean, we, we the stuff we found out about Derbyshire since the film is as mind-blowing and as surreal and crazy as what's in the film. Um, when we released the film, End of Empire threatened to sue us for defamation. The producers of End of Empire, Brian Lapping, Norma Percy, Mark Anderson, and Alison Roper. Mark Anderson and Alison Roper feature in the film. They're the researcher and director you see being interviewed in the cutting room. Uh, and they never actually hired lawyers. They never sent us any legal documents, no notices. They clear, just simply created a smear campaign to divert and distract attention from the core truth at the heart of the film. Uh, they say we had an off-the-record pre-interview for research purposes only to guide us with our interviews with other interviewees who appear in the film. That's complete BS because none of the most striking, staggering revelations in, in Darvish's interview are in their film. They didn't, they didn't even interview other people about the points that he raises. Our film 
and they admit this themselves, is the first to reveal the Derbyshire interview in full in the most dramatic cinematic way. And that's why we made the film. This is a cinematic history document doing something that no other documentary about the coup has done. Uh, uh, 90% of the credit, by the way, goes to the great Walter Murch, the editor and co-writer of this film, a legend in cinema, Walter Murch of Apocalypse Now, The Conversation, The Godfather movies, The English Patient. I mean, I am not the world's best documentary maker, but I am the luckiest by far to have Walter commit 10 years of his life uh, to this film. And he's the heart and soul and brain, the skills, the, 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 the artistry of bringing out the minutiae of Crew 53 onto the screen is Walter Murch. I, I just got lucky finding the stuff. I, I, I wanted to stop you there because the, I think the reason that the producers were so angry because was because you raised the, the very legitimate question as to whether MI6 came in and said, there's no way that this is ever going to be public. Exactly. Exactly. You know, all, all due respect to them, they end up with the most significant historic interview with a man who ran the coup an event that's still shaping Anglo-Iranian relations, Iran's relation with the West. Iranians are still suffering the consequences of the coup. We're still living with it 70 years later. And they couldn't use this interview. Either they couldn't or they decided not to. We don't know. They haven't come clean about it. An Iranian filmmaker comes along, backed with Walter Murch and Rafe Fiennes and some incredible filmmakers and brings this to life. And there's an echo of uh, professional rivalry that Derbyshire suffered with Kermit, with these guys, possibly. Uh, and as I say, the HD, the historic dimension, the British have not come clean. They didn't come clean in 1983. Derbyshire went rogue. He definitely went rogue. Nobody is questioning the veracity and the accuracy of that interview. Uh, they've confirmed this is his interview. He said those things. An MI6 officer, a senior level MI6 officer who masterminded the 1953 overthrow of Iranian democracy has gone rogue and put it out there. We found it. We brought it onto the screen. We shared it with the world. The reviews confirm the astonishing level of revelation. Uh, Walter Murch says out of all the movies he's ever worked on, this is the best reviewed ever. Uh, we've had global, global uh, response to the film. We do not have distribution. That is mind-blowing. Uh, this film is the most successful film that Walter Murch has made in critical acclaim in audience response. Uh, we self-distributed. We broke box office record on our own from our kitchen tables in the middle of COVID. Distributors would come. We'll be blown away. They came to Telluride, our world premiere, and the guy from Sony Pictures Classics came over to my producer and said, this is terrific. We get back to New York on Monday. We want to talk about global distribution. He vanished. That scenario has repeated itself over and over again. Nobody says we can't distribute your film because it's a piece of crap. Nobody says it doesn't really work as a movie. Nobody says it's not really working in, as a documentary. They love it. They vanish. Let, let's talk about, I mean, one of the things about that Derbyshire interview is there's, because the, the police, the head of police is loyal to most of the day and is brutally tortured and assassinated, and they asked Derbyshire whether the British were involved, and he, his first answer is yes. Um, but I want to go on to who Mossadeh was, and I want to talk about the role of British petroleum, because like so many colonial 
corporations. They would extract resources and as they did out of Iran, and Iran had no idea what, uh, how much oil, what the revenue was. They were just never told what the, it was complete theft. And it was, uh, of course, incredibly important to the British Empire. In fact, the Iranian oil fields saw the conversion of the, under Winston Churchill, force, first Lord of the Admiralty in the, uh, in the early part of the uh, century, uh, convert the, to, from coal to uh, oil. So let's talk about first, you know, the presence of the British, what they were doing, and then who Mossadegh was, because he was a remarkable, incorruptible, brilliant figure, and, uh, and bringing him down uh, did uh, so much destruction to not, not only destroying Iran's democracy, but of course, affecting in a very negative way, hundreds, if not millions of lives. Not many people know that British Petroleum was born in Iran. It was first the Anglo-Persian oil company, then became the Anglo-Iranian right up to the coup, and it finally came out as British Petroleum BP. The Anglo-Iranian oil company was essentially working as a state within a state. It was very much like the East India Company in, 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 in India. It ran not just the Khuzestan region and and, and Abadan refinery town. It had its fingers in every pie in every section of Iranian society. They, they bribed um, uh, the members of parliament. They, they interfered at every level of Iranian society. So they were essentially uh, a finger in every pie kind of colonial power. Uh, absolutely, as you say, uh, it, it, and the Anglo-Iranian oil company was the biggest overseas asset of the British state. It was a highly, highly profitable asset. Iranians were not allowed to look at the books. They had no idea what profits were being made. They were supposed to get 16% of the profits, but that was going to be calculated in London after they paid their own taxes. But the Anglo-Iranian oil company was owned by the British state, so it was essentially paying tax to itself. And by the time they did all the kind of creative accounting, cooking the books, Iranians got nothing. Uh, Mossadegh came along. Uh, he was a highly educated, uh, cultured, and secular leader. And, and he came to power quite late in life. Uh, and he ran on the ticket of nationalizing Iranian oil and reforming elections because the elections were corrupt and no, nobody really would get into power without bribery and some British control. Uh, and as soon as he got into office, he wrote his own death sentence because the British decided to get rid of him as soon as he nationalized Iranian oil and came into office. In those 28 months, Iran had the closest brush with a fledgling democracy. It could have gone a different way. It's one of those biggest what if questions of history. What if he could stay and deliver his dream of democracy for Iran and independence and control of our resources. Uh, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. We were living with the consequences. And um, the document supporting this are undeniable. Uh, the Derbyshire interview confirms it. He actually says uh, there's, a, there's a line in the, in, the, in the interview that we bring to life. Uh, I'm the one asking the question, sitting in for the end of empire interviewee. Uh, you know, could the British not have done a deal with him? or you know, come to some arrangement. He said, no, they wanted to get rid of him as soon as they got into office. So it wasn't like we had to get rid of him because he wasn't, he wasn't negotiating with us. We, we didn't reach a compromise. There was no compromise ever in their minds. Um, he became a symbol of democracy. He's still a symbol of secular democracy for Iranians. Uh, the trigger for this film for me 
was in 2009 uh, post-election crisis, the Green Movement of the Ahmadinejad election that was called into question and led to, pro led to protests. Uh, I was there trying to film the elections, but I decided not to because it was getting too chaotic and just I, I stopped. I just decided to be an observer. In fact, I stayed at home and, and all the Shah's men was on my friend's bookshelf. And even though I had the book in London, uh, I'd never read it because I thought, why, why, why would an American tell me what's happening in my country? I had time. I read the book. It's brilliantly written. It's a page turner. And I saw on the streets young protesters holding Mossadegh's portrait. Mm. And these are kids born after the revolution. And I thought, wow, this guy still means something to the young Iranians fighting for some kind of freedom and democracy. Uh, the combination of reading the book and seeing his portrait on the streets, I thought, this is my next movie. This was in 2009. It took, uh, you know, 10 years before it finished in 2019. I, I, I want to spend the last 10 minutes talking about the tactics. You're talking about Stephen Kinzer's book. David Talbot also wrote a good book called The Devil's Chessboard. Kinzer's book, All the Shaw's Men, is brilliant, like all of his stuff. Uh, but let's talk about the tactics because these are the tactics that, as I mentioned in the introduction, are just used, the template, used over and over and over and over. So what are they? How does it work? Yeah, it's it's repeat and rinse, repeat and rinse. Repeat Iranian, and rinse, right. Repeat and rinse. Uh, the 1953 coup was essentially the first time the, the, the newly born CIA went off campus and played, uh, encouraged and pulled in by, by, by the British. And it went well. In the short term, this was a huge success. They got what they wanted. It was relatively cheap. It was quick. No American lives were lost. A few Iranians died, but who cares about that? And so it, it was seen as a huge success. And so, of course, in 1954, they did the same in Guatemala. And it, as you list in your opening, it go, it went on and on and on. And, you know, this year we are marking the 50th anniversary of the Chilean coup with uh, Pinochet and Allende, 70th anniversary of the Iranian coup. And so it's buying military officers, paying the mob, and assassinating anyone who might get in the way. Uh, this, this has happened several times. It wasn't just in Iran. And getting rid of the uh, General Afshar Tus was a critical turning point. It, it, was the, it was like pulling the rug from under Mossadegh's feet and paved the way for the coup. Um, the press, propaganda. too. The, pr the press, was they, they bought the press off. Yeah, just it was just coming to that. They bought the press off. The CIA officer would sit in Langley and write anti-Mossadegh propaganda uh, send it to Tehran, it gets translated into Persian and appear in newspapers the next day. And you know, Richard Cotton, the CIA agent who did that, is in our film. Uh, he, he's from the archive of End of Empire. End of Empire's archive is fascinating, by the way, because when we've got access to all the, all the unused footage, all of it, like, you know, 500 minutes or something, it was quite a lot of material, they left out the most incendiary, revelatory content. Why would you film these people telling you this incredible stuff and then put a whitewashed, tame version of it in your film? Uh, putting aside the fact that they didn't use the star witness garbage at all. Um, and so they're very, very clear about what they're talking about in terms of propaganda. Uh, smearing Mossadegh, he's a communist, he's, he's a homosexual, he's a, he's a British agent, anything they could write. Uh, in a way, some of the smear campaign techniques techniques used against Mossadegh have been used against Coup 53 itself, the film. Uh, and that will be in our follow-up coda, Coup 53. Let, let, me, let me ask about the Shah. And as I mentioned before we went on the air, my father was a cryptographer in Iran during World War II. And because he had high security clearance when they were overthrowing the Shah's father, who was 
the Americans saw with perhaps some justification as being sympathetic to the Germans. Uh, they and a, and a very powerful but tyrannical figure, and replaced him with this very weak son. My father was his bodyguard until they got rid of the father for a while. But uh, let's talk about the Shah because he's he's uh, even the CIA finds him amazingly cowardly, indecisive, uh, very weak figure. They at one point they go to Rome. Darbyshire goes to Rome and bribes the sister who actually has a you know a kind of strong personality that her brother doesn't i think they were twins right were they twins and uh, brother, and twins, and, yeah. and fly her back after giving her a mink coat and a lot of money but talk about the shaw because he he is the he's the front guy for british petroleum the cia uh and then of course disastrous and savak's important because that was formed by the cia it becomes a, one of the one of the most repressive secret police uh, agencies in the world. Uh, yep. But let's talk about th that, you know, what they put in place of Mossadegh. The Shah was weak, indecisive, vacillating, highly suspicious. He would always take the advice of the last person who came into the room and whoever that was, that's what, that's the path he followed. Uh, even his father wasn't really respecting his son's sort of authority and his power in, in uh, there's a rumor it's an anecdotal thing that i really wish your sister had the balls because she would make a better king than you if only ashraf you know the twin sister was in charge and she definitely was a very powerful authoritative and kind of a strong woman um the shah was toyed with i think he 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 feared the, he, he he thought they were out to get him because they kind of he knew that they got rid of his father they thought they were trying to get rid of him it took a long time to persuade him to go along with the coup because he wasn't quite sure who he was going who was playing who uh, it took a lot of cajoling finally as you say it's, it's it's his sister who went to go and went to iran to you know persuade him to sign the sign the release sign sign the kind of ferman for the coup um as with all weak dictators they become more authoritarian as they go along. The Shah was backed by the CIA uh, in, in setting up the Savak uh, Secret Service. Uh, I grew up the first 15 years of my life under the Savak. Uh, my teachers were arrested by Savak when I was at school. So I, I sort of know that experience firsthand. Uh, books that were banned by the Shah's Secret Service, and if you were caught with them, you'd be in trouble. I we used to hide them in school under desks and clandestinely pass them around, finish reading them and pass them on. And then there was one word, one late night saying that there's, they're going from neighborhood to neighborhood looking for banned books. So my father and I went into the garden at the middle of the night burying books in next to the radishes. The red and the radish and the books are sort of imprinted in my brain. So, and Savak was set up by the CIA in order to keep the Shah in power because they knew he was a weak man. Uh, we have Stephen Mead, uh, the military intelligence officer, uh, in props, perhaps the only interview he ever gives, uh, he gives to End of Empire. They didn't use him. You have the man who essentially helped the Shah set up Savak. He says so. They didn't use him. And he says, yeah, I went, I went to Iran. And I was sent by Eisenhower personally uh, in September 1953 after the coup to help him stay in power by setting up Savak. Um, and, and the torture techniques very, very much CIA techniques. And um, so that's why when 79 happened, even though the British were behind the coup, it was death to America, the bigger chant than death to the, the, to the British. 
And let's talk about blowback. I mean, let's end there. The the uh, the 1979. I, I do think we have to mention that the 1979 revolution was not. Uh, it was seized by the clerics and Khomeini, but certainly on the on the university campuses, most of those kids were communists. There were uh, they were crushed by Khomeini, uh, but there were powerful secular elements that were also trying to overthrow the Shah. They were wiped out once Khomeini came into power. But it wasn't it wasn't a religious movement, uh, not in term not not. Uh, uh, it may have been out of Qom and places like that, but but certainly in Tehran it wasn't. It, it became so increasingly. Uh, it was a mass popular movement. It had a huge cross-section of society, the intellectuals, the writers, the artists, the workers. It was a very much a popular revolution. Uh, what the Shah did was he crushed all civil institutions, uh, unions, any kind of organization that could come together, political parties. There were no parties. Uh, there were two parties. There was there was a yes party and a yes sir party, <laughs> and, and so the only section of Iranian society that was allowed to flourish and continue was the mosque, and that was a very powerful network on the ground, grassroots, and that's why come the revolution, they were the most organized who could get together, and they had a very charismatic re- leader. Uh, the rest of the Iranian society didn't have the framework, didn't have the structure, uh, and it was a very much a sort of a, an uprising that started in 53. It took a long time. It took 25 years of solid iron fist dictatorship and oppression that blew up. Uh, the most fascinating picture I've seen of the revolution isn't the mobs and isn't uh, the street crowds and all the shootings and everything else. Soon after the revolution, Mossadegh's portraits are on the sidewalks everywhere on Tehran being sold. Because if you had a picture of Mossadegh under the Shah, you could be arrested. If you had one of these books, you could be arrested. And suddenly, he came out. Uh, he, he died in March 67. The revolution was in February uh, 79. March 79, on the anniversary of Mossadegh's death, for the first time, Iranians could actually go and visit his grave at his house. Over a million people marched in the dead of winter across fields to get to his house to pay their respects. That tells you where the Iranian heart and soul was. The biggest, most glamorous, longest street in Tehran is an amazing avenue. It goes from the very north, northern tip of the city, from the foothills of the Alborz Mountain to the deep south. It's a beautifully tree-lined street. It was called Pahlavi Avenue after the Shah. After the revolution, it was renamed Mossadegh for six months before they changed the name. That was Taghi Amirani on his documentary film, Coup. 53. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.